Matthew 27, verse 61 through Matthew 28, verse 10. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So back in the fall, my wife and I decided that we would do something that we had thought we would never do. We thought we would venture into the world of dog ownership. We have three boys, a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old. My 9- and 7-year-old that are here with us today, my 12-year-old's homesick. They want a dog so bad. It's, they talk about it all the time. Whenever they see a dog, they run over to the dog. They snuggle the dog. They want. It's just they love dogs and Susie and I have been debating for a long time whether or not we would actually ever get a dog and we've we've tried out pet sitting right we love watching people's dogs because we can always give them back and so we watch little dogs and big dogs we've watched lazy dogs and crazy dogs we've uh we've watched old dogs and young dogs I sound like a Dr. Seuss poem or something right now we've watched them all and we loved it so much so we thought you know what let's do it 
Let's get a dog. And so we started looking at the internet, trying to figure out what dog would be right for us. Where would we find one? Um, you know, dogs can be expensive, so we're looking for one that's not a lot of money. You know, we're trying to figure this all out. And so we, we land on this dog, this dog named Milo. And Milo is this wonderful dog. He's a two-year-old, yellow lab. He's uh, been trained. He's uh, apparently great with kids. He, um, he even, he can jump off the end of a dock and grab stuff out of the air and land in the water. I mean, it just sounds like the perfect dog for a family with three boys. And so on one of my days off, Susie and I committed and I drove to North Carolina and I brought home Milo. And Milo is such a cute dog and Wyatt, you're cute too, if not cuter, right? So But we brought home Milo. And so much of what the owner of Milo told us when we bought Milo was true. A great dog, great with kids, lots of energy, likes to lick people, all wonderful. But one of the things that they neglected to tell us is that Milo is an escape artist. (laughs) Milo can get out of anything. And one of the things that he likes to get out of is the backyard. See, we have a fenced-in backyard, and all the dogs we've watched, tall dogs, small dogs, lazy dogs, crazy dogs, all the different dogs that we have watched in our life have been fine in the backyard. We go out, we throw tennis balls, sometimes we just leave the door open to the outside, and the dog goes out and does his business and comes back in, and it's great. And we thought, well, that makes dog ownership that much easier. And so Milo would run out into the backyard, and if you turned your eyes away from Milo, he would be gone. So I started watching. How did Milo get out? And and a lot of times he'd get up on the picnic table and then jump up over the fence from the picnic table and be gone. So I moved the picnic table. And then then he climbed up on a pile of rocks that we have in the backyard and, and, and went over the fence that way. So we moved the pile of rocks. And then after I figured out every way that he could launch over the fence, he started going under the fence. And so I'm out there securing this fence day in and day out, trying to figure out how to keep Milo in my yard. Because when Milo gets out of the yard, the other thing the owners didn't tell us is he's actually not obedient. So it takes about a pound of bacon to get him back in the yard. (laughs) So I'm doing everything I can to secure my backyard and to keep us in. And finally, if he can't go under, he just hits the latch with his paw and walks out the door. Now, I'm going to tell you the end of the story, which for some of you mean you don't want to listen to me anymore, but I gave Milo back. I know, you're all like, uh, I had to tell you that because people afterwards will be like, well, what'd you do with the dog? I did. I gave Milo back. And, and, and my nine-year-old that's right here, he even, we had a family meeting about it. And my nine-year-old said, Dad, Milo's a great dog and Milo needs lots of love, but I don't think we have enough time in our life to give Milo all the love that he needs. All right? So none of my kids are going to grow up to be, you know, hate me or anything like that. It's all good. We got through it. But I I was reading this passage and prepping for this sermon, and Travis and I were studying together, which was really fun to write a sermon with Travis this week as he's preaching on the other side of the wall. But one of the things that kept jumping out to us as we studied this passage was Matthew's word, uh, use of the word secure. That Matthew wants us to know that Jesus' tomb is super, super secure. Just like my backyard's fence, which was secure enough for every other animal in the world except for Milo. Matthew wants us to know that there is a group of individuals that is doing everything they can to make sure that Jesus' tomb is secure. 
We can see the word secure three times in the passage that Doug read. In 64, 65, 66. This word secure. And if you do a word study and you look through the whole Bible on where we can find this word, you only find it one other place. It describes basically a maximum security prison. Because this is a word that means super, super secure. It's a word that Matthew wants to have jump off the page. Remember, when writers of the New Testament are writing, they don't have exclamation points. And so they have to repeat words over and over again until the reader goes, I get it, I get it. And as we read this, Matthew wants us to know that there was a group of people that was doing everything they could to make sure that Jesus' tomb was secure. And it's not just that Matthew uses this word. He tells us all about it. Right, Doug mentioned that right before these verses that we started on, we have Joseph of Arimathea who is rolling a stone in front of the tomb. Now, now this is just the first step, and this is more normal for the day. Most people put a stone in front of the tomb. And a lot of times we go back to our Sunday school drawings and even the bulletins that the kids may have that they're coloring in today of like a giant round stone. And, and it could have been that. But most likely it was, it was more of a stone that was shaped uh, a little bit like a wedge. And as they carved this tomb into the rock, they took this stone that was tapered on one end and pushed it into that hole getting it stuck in there, kind of like a cork on top of a wine bottle. You know, they press that stone into the hole of the tomb and make it nearly impossible for it to come out. But Matthew doesn't just tell us that there was a stone that was put in front of Jesus' tomb. No, he tells us more. He says that guards were placed at this tomb. Now, whether these guards were Roman guards or temple guards doesn't really matter. The point is, they were guards. And in this day and age, you didn't mess with guards. Guards didn't have a lot of rules they had to live by. If you messed with a guard, they could just beat you up. They could kill you. They could throw you in prison. They sort of had free reign of what they wanted to do. And so by putting guards there in front of the tomb, Matthew's letting us know that nobody wants to come there. Nobody wants to show up. That this tomb is secure. But Matthew continues, it doesn't just have a stone, it doesn't just have guards. There's a very interesting detail in verse 66. It says, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Now this is very unusual for someone to seal their gravestone. And there's two ways they could have done it. Maybe they took clay and and pushed clay between the rock that they stuffed in the hole and the cliff itself. They may have used clay, but it's possible because they're talking to Pilate that this is actually an official seal. Now, I remember as a kid, my dad had one of those rings that had the family crest on it and that little stick of wax, right? And he could melt the wax onto the end of an envelope and, and push his ring down into it and it sealed that envelope. And that's a little bit of what this verb here in Matthew may be talking about. That literally they took rope and cloth and they stuffed it into the holes between the stone and the cliff. And then they poured wax all around it. And possibly even pressed in the seal of Pilate. Because one thing was sure, if you broke the seal of the governor, well then you would die. That even on a letter, if the governor wrote a letter and sealed it with his seal, and you were not the recipient of that letter, and you opened it up, you were going to die. 
And so by sealing this tomb, by putting the seal into the wax, Matthew's letting us know that if anybody touches that stone, they're going to die. The guards, the law, the seal, the rock, everything is there in place to secure this stone. And Matthew wants us to know that this stone is secure. But one may need to ask the question, why are they doing this? But they tell us, and Matthew tells us, and the simple answer is this. We find it in verses 63 and 64. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they want to secure this stone because they know something. They know that Jesus has said, in three days, I'm coming out. That you're going to kill me, and I'm going to go to the grave, but in three days, I am going to rise again, and I'm going to bust out of that tomb. Now, I don't believe the teachers of the law are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we got to seal that stone because Jesus is going to wake up in there, and he's going to come out. No, we learn in the verses that the leaders of the law, the the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, those there that are talking to Pilate, they want to seal that stone because they're scared that Jesus' disciples are going to come in the cover of night and they're going to pry that stone open and they're going to steal Jesus' body and they're going to bury it somewhere else and then they're going to tell everybody that he came out of the grave. And so these, these leaders of the law, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, the ones in power, they want to stop this rebellion. They want to stop this story. And they think that the disciples are going to keep it going by stealing the body. And so let's seal this thing up. Let's secure this stone for good. But I think if we ask ourselves an even deeper question, we'd say, why are they really so scared of Jesus coming out? Why are they really so intent on securing this stone? And I think the answer to that question is this. They like being in control. They like having authority. They love having power. These people that are working so hard to secure this stone and to keep Jesus in there are the ones that get to call all the shots. They make all the rules. For three years, they've been arguing with Jesus. And Jesus tells them, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're all good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dying. He tells them, you've created your own system for righteousness. You've decided what makes you good and holy. But that's my job, not yours. And they know that if Jesus does what he says he's going to do and he comes busting out of that grave, then this whole world of control and authority that they've created around themselves, it's all going to crumble. Because if Jesus really does come back from the dead, then they've got it all wrong. And so they seal that stone. So they set those guards So they put that wax seal on it. So they do everything they can to keep Jesus inside because they want to be in control of the life that they're living. But there's a second story that's unfolding. Doug mentioned it as he read these verses, and it's the reason why we started in verse 61. Because there's another narrative that Matthew is building alongside this. That as some are scrambling to secure that stone, there's another. You see, there's another group of people, these women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They're sitting there and they're watching and they're waiting and they're hoping and they're anticipating and they're trusting. 
And they're right there as everybody's frantic to secure the stone. They're sitting and they're watching. Last week, as Doug preached on Palm Sunday, he said the wise watch and wait despite the delay and the agonizing delay of these three days. But Mary and, Ma- Mary, and Mary know, just as the Pharisees do, that Jesus said, I'm only going to be in there three days. I'm coming back. And so they wait and they watch and they hope and they trust and they're there. And as Matthew builds the other story, he lets us know that once again on the third day, as the dawn creeps, as the sun rises above the hillside and sheds light onto the front of the tomb, that Mary and Mary are there. And a tremendous reality takes place. The world starts to shake. An earthquake rumbles. The heavens open up. An angel descends. And this stone that has been sealed so securely and carefully by all those in power is removed. And the tomb is empty. Because Jesus is alive. And Mary and Mary, both fearful of the reality they're watching, but joyful because they know that Jesus said this is the way it was going to be. They look into the tomb and a tomb that was supposed to be filled with the smell of death and the stench of death is filled with light and life and they start running. And they run to tell the other disciples. They run to share the news that Jesus was who he says he was. He is who he says he is, that he's alive. And as they run, they hear a voice, an oh so familiar voice saying such a familiar word. Greetings. Hey, what's up? How you doing? And they turn. And this familiar voice coming from this familiar face and this familiar man. And they fall at his feet and they worship the risen Savior. And so Matthew wants us to see these two stories unfolding side by side. That there are those who are securing the stone, that are doing everything they can to keep Jesus in. And there's a whole nother group that is there, these women that are surrendered to the Savior, that are waiting for him to come out, and they are worshiping and falling at his feet when they see him. And so Matthew wants to ask us a question. Are we securing the stone? Or are we surrendered to the Savior? Are we trying to control our life? Are we trying to call the shots? Are we trying to live the way that we want to live and decide what's right and wrong ourselves? To decide what's righteous and unrighteous? To decide what's holy and unholy? And the only way we can do that is if we keep Jesus out of our life. If we secure him back into the tomb that we put him in. And if we do that, then we can keep control. Or Matthew asks us the question, are we like these women? Are we surrendered to the Savior? Are we waiting for him to bust through death and into our lives and meet us in our journeys and say, hey, what's up? I'm right here. And are we willing to surrender to the Savior? Which life are you living But Matthew, before you answer that, wants to let you know the answer 
or, or at least the outcome of those two lives. See, one thing happens here. The guards, there's this wonderful description that he makes that as the angel comes, as the earth trembles, as the angel descends, as the tombs open, as they realize it's empty, Matthew says they became like dead men. The guards that were positioned there, that were posted there, that were there to make sure that Jesus stayed in, they became like dead men. And I think Matthew wants us to remind us that we, if we live our life trying to keep Jesus out, we live a life like dead men. That even though we're trying to control it and own it and have authority, it just leads to death. But there's another way, right? There's surrendering to the Savior and, and Matthew wants us to know what that looks like too. And in one sentence or two sentences that he shares with these women, Jesus tells us so much about what life surrendered to the Savior looks like. He says in verse 10 of 28, Jesus looks at the women that are fallen at his feet and worshiping him, and he says, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I think there's three things that Jesus is saying that Matthew wants us to know about what life in Jesus looks like. And the first is peace. Because the first words he says to them after saying hello are, don't be afraid. But if you're like me, it's pretty hard not to be afraid. That when you read the news... It's pretty hard not to be afraid. But Jesus says, peace. He brings us peace into our everyday lives. He brings us peace when we're going through sickness. He gives us peace when our loved ones are dying. He gives us peace when we're in the midst of chaos. He gives us peace. And some of us, when we look at our past and what we've done and what we've been through and what's done to, been done to us, we're filled with chaos and turmoil and pain and hurt. And Jesus says, I bring you peace. And for some of us, when we look to our future and all that is to come and all the unknown and all the decisions we're going to have to make and the things we're going to do, Jesus comes to us and says, peace. That a life with Jesus Christ brings peace and it doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it all works out perfectly. But it means that we all have peace. And ultimately that we have peace with our creator. So that when we too pass into death, we can bust out the other side into life. Because of what Jesus has done for us. And so he offers peace. But it's not just peace he offers partnership. He says to these women, he says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Jesus just busted out of a tomb. He could have told them themselves. In fact, they could have been like, hey, Jesus, why don't you go tell them? But he says, no, join into my work. Join into my mission. Join into the work of making disciples and changing the world and go and share it with everyone else. Jesus says, join into the partnership with me. That whether you're a banker or a builder or a lawyer or a lectioner or whatever you are, Jesus says, join me. Jump into the mission. 
partner with me in making disciples and telling the world about who I am and what I've done and that I bring peace. So Jesus brings peace, he brings partnership, and ultimately he brings presence. He says, tell them in Galilee, you will see me. And at the end of chapter 28, even more bold, he says, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes as a parent, we do ridiculous things. And one of the ridiculous things I did is that one day when Tucker was homesick on my day off, we Netflixed some episodes of a show called Finding Bigfoot. Not the smartest thing to do with a young child, which meant he would never go upstairs in our house again alone. Because Bigfoot could be up there. But what do I have to do? I have to go up there with him. And so Tucker always says, hey, Tuck, you know, we say, Tuck, go up, brush your teeth, take a bath. Will you come upstairs with me? And it's amazing what a little, uh, little partnership, a little presence can do there with Tucker, Right? I'm just sitting in the hallway looking at my phone, looking at Instagram or something. But my presence there does something to empower Tucker to be able to be upstairs and Bigfoot doesn't get him. Because if Bigfoot showed up, you know what? I'm running too, Tucker. (laughs) Like, I I can't help you. But this is presence that is much better than the presence of a dad in a hallway looking at his phone. This is the presence of the Savior whose spirit empowered him to bust through death and to come out of the grave and move to the other side. And that Savior is present with us. Peace and partnership and presence when we surrender to the Savior. This morning on this Easter, I think Matthew wants us to answer the question, what story are you living? Are you truly surrendered to the Savior? Have you let him into every part of your life, every relationship you're in, every dollar you're spending, every move you're making, every step you're taking, every decision you're making at work? Because surrendering to the Savior is not a one-and-done reality. It's an everyday movement. It's walking through life with your hands open going, Jesus, lead me, guide me, mold me, move me, shape me. Where if you sealed the stone off and secured it tight so that you can live the way you want to live. Matthew tells us one way leads to death and another way leads to life. And on this Easter when we celebrate the reality that our Savior defeated death and is walking down the trails of our life saying, hey, hello, greetings, I'm right here. Would we choose the path of Mary's, of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and worship at the feet of the Savior and surrender to him and not keep him buried securely in that tomb? Would we find that life in freedom in Jesus Christ this Easter?